Hi everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, that's Chris Sacknesson, and this is the sound of my coffee maker. I might uh, take that on board as a percussionist. Isn't that great? In my ensemble. Yeah, Gus I like it. Gus is fascinated with it. Whenever I'm making a cup of coffee, he insists that I pick him up so he can watch the liquid come out and the steam rise. And he sits there and he goes, wow. That's his big thing now is going, wow. And it's... Uh, well, I hope, I hope that continues for life. You know, that's, you know... Wow, and what a concept are great things to say, you know. Just kind of begin with that, that stoner aesthetic of, of just amazement. And uh, that's such a great positioning for life. Is there any reason to ever not take the stoner approach? I mean, it's served me well in life, and I'm not even a stoner. I've never taken to marijuana. I've never liked it. I've never liked the way that it made me feel. And sometimes you have... The case where you know some people don't need to get drunk because they're high on life some people don't need cocaine because they have natural energy the freaks but i think i've never needed marijuana because that's the default setting of my brain but it i mean what's the point in in not being fascinated by things i was taking gus for a walk today it's a cool 45 degrees here the sun is shining the wind is blowing um by the time we got inside our fingers and nose and ears were cold fingers noses and ears were cold and i was just looking at houses and i was looking at the designs of the different houses because i don't live in a cookie cutter mcmansion style suburb i live in one that was built in the 60s and 70s where each individual house had its own plan its own layout and i've caught the architecture bug again I've been reading a lot about the metabolists. It's really, it's fascinating. Have you ever seen the capsule tower in Tokyo? I have, I have. It's not the prettiest architecture, but I'm fascinated with the idea that it's something that's meant to organically evolve with age and with the changing landscape. What a concept. Well, I'll call your attention if you're on a real architecture groove one of the uh, the publishers that, that we've supported in the past, uh, Tashin mm-hmm. Books, T-A-S-C-H-E-N, uh, they just do some of the most gorgeous fine arts books that are extremely well written across a, the entire field of, of certainly modern architecture. But they, they have a great commitment to the whole field historically. But some of their... Uh, contemporary stuff is just so exciting and it's very well written and it can get people who uh, you know have no background in architecture really excited about where it's going in the same way that Gaston Bachelard got people you know interested in the poetics of space they they just blow that up and there's some really interesting thinking and there's a lot of new stuff that's coming from other parts of the world. America is certainly not, you know, leading the charge internationally on this, and hasn't been really, maybe, uh, maybe ever, <laughs> but certainly not for for a while. Uh, but there's some cool stuff going on, and there's a lot of interesting uh, work by uh, mm-hmm. by women, mm-hmm. you know. And architecture was not seen as, uh, you know, a female friendly. Uh, 
field of endeavor. Although, you know, there are some great examples. Uh, the design of Hearst Castle was done by mm -hmm. a woman, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of people don't know that. Imagine being, you know, given an open checkbook brief to just go completely cool crazy. That? that would be uh, so cool. Speaking yeah. of which, just as a side note, if anybody wants to buy David a Christmas gift this year, Tashin recently put out a book on the work of Kengo Kuma, the architect, and it looks beautiful. It's, you know, it's ta it's Tashin oh. Price, but it came out... It came out last year, and I, uh, I look online and I drool. I was looking at the pictures inside that book. There, I know exactly what you're talking because I get all of their uh, promo literature on everything that comes out. Uh, they do have a, a real commitment to fine arts, as does Faden, P H A I D O N, part of Oxford University Press, who are also beautiful fine arts publishers. And they do publish some very high-end stuff, sometimes some you know, really exclusive, mm -hmm. cool, limited edition things that are priced accordingly. But Tashin and Faden both do try to have ranges of books that are down in the $20 and $40 mm -hmm. you know, range that are very affordable. And I think for people who want uh, to get some literacy in in various aspects of fine art, whether it be graphic design or architecture or, or fashion, for instance, uh, which was something that I was never interested in when I was younger. But now, I would, you know, if you want to go to a publisher and say, look, I can, you know, give me, th I want to find three books that are really crucial to understanding this field and getting a little bit more knowledge and excitement about it. They're the ones. They're yeah. the ones doing like, it. So like I, I, I applaud like them. Too, there are books that, you know, there's the introduction to, to Buddhist, or I'm sorry, not Buddhist, but Japanese woodblocks. That's 25 bucks. All the way up. I was, I only know this because I was searching this yesterday, but there is a, a book of, who was it? Annie Leibovitz uh, of her art. It's a special edition that costs yes. uh, seven thousand dollars so it really the prices run the gamut well i think and i think that's important because they they are working in at the very highest end of fine arts publishing and and the production values deliver on those prices yeah, believe so me good. from uh, a book nerd perspective i mean but, as, a, as a as a physical object these they just look incredible but I have a beautiful uh, work on Hieronymus Bosch, which includes Ooh, all of, of yeah. beautifully beautiful color plates. Um, but it's also extremely well written, extremely well written. Um, so I mean, there is that. You know, I think there's an important. Uh, it, they're not just coffee table books, is what I'm mm -hmm. trying to say. They're 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 books for. Uh, serious enjoyment and further interest and inquiry and they're my they're the books that I think about first when I think of books that I want to hold mm -hmm. in my hand as opposed to reading on mm -hmm. Kindle right you know I'm so tired of the Kindle do you have Kindle fatigue like I have Kindle fatigue I just can't can't look at it anymore <clears throat> Uh, well, I do. My, my actual physical Kindle died, so I'm back to uh, when I do read. I'm reading on my, uh, well, what to me is a big screen. My niece goes, why do you have such a small screen? It's my screen for, for television. You know, it's about 
uh, two and a half times the size of my laptop screen. So for me, it's quite substantial. But nevertheless, it fixes me to my mm -hmm. desk. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit more focused reading. Right, right. Um, it, in other words, I'm not in my uh, special reading chair. Uh, but I do know what you mean by Kindle fatigue. I absolutely do. And I, I know that you can't just uh, navigate as comfortably as you would like to go back and, and to that's get out. Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm getting out of something to go check another book, mm -hmm. you know, and really I'm, 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 I, I read something that triggered something and there's a book, you know, only three feet away. And I just want to go check that and see, you know, if my imagined correspondence is correct. Somehow the Kindle environment wow. makes it a video game project right. of like, Oh, I've got to exit this and go there, and it's like, what? yeah. Now we we've got a ways like to go. A no question. Like there's no no past and yes. no real future besides that little percentage indicator. At the, that percentage, I have to get rid of that. It drives me nuts. It's you are ten percent done with the book. Oh no. Oh that. yes, that's can't do yeah, that. yeah yeah. Psychological. Yeah, you're right. You know, it it's a little yeah. It, it is like a tunnel. That percentage thing is absolutely debilitating. Um, and it's a little bit like a, a Vegas casino right. in terms of you, you don't know what time it is. You're sealed right. off. You're, you, you know, just stay on this machine or just stay at this table, you know, and, and we'll take oh, care of the rest. So and that is so true. I, I do have some issues there for sure. Um, to get the show on the road, do you have a band for us today I do I do um, I've got one thing I've got to insert beforehand because this is uh, you're you're starting you know you're involved in the family sort of business and I don't know where else to put this except at the, the head of the show I for whatever stupid reason found myself watching the first episode of Lost in Space and I don't know I was trying to think if I'd had this weird experience before, if it was a deja vu, but uh, the the narrator is a very famous uh, voice who did a, just a ton of different shows, and I I'm trying to imitate him in my in another project. So I think it's just one of those voices that you grew up with, but the Space Family Robinson, mm -hmm. you know, a variation on the Swiss Family Robinson. Were, were chosen from two million people to be the first family to be sent into space on the basis of three criteria. Scientific achievement, emotional stability, and pioneer resourcefulness. So I want you to write those three things down and put them on your fridge and they can be a kind of you know checklist, aspirational goal for your family, Love it. Love you know, it. think, you know, scientific achievement, emotional stability, and pioneer resourcefulness. If you compare, I mean, that sounds a little hokey and, and kind of, uh, well, not a little idealistic, but compare that to, you know, the snarky irony of the Simpsons and, you know, everybody's okay with belly fat and, you know, let's just sit on the couch. Mm -hmm. You know, we've lost something. We've really, really lost something. But anyway, I just had to slip that in because I just thought that was such an amazing uh, 
aspirational frame for for family integrity and teamwork mm -hmm. and, and mental scientific health scientific yeah. achievement emotional uh, stability and pioneer resourcefulness did I remember that correctly yeah yeah you down. did well done well done okay so the band we're, we're getting weird here we're getting weird we're going uh, a little bit vaudeville I guess my, my claim is that we've never left vaudeville behind vaudeville is the ultimate uh, adaptive entertainment form uh, but we've got a band called Parasitic Head, and they're uh, a group of four, a quartet of four really capable ventriloquists who sing a cappella, <coughs> completely a cappella, but they have learned how to sing backwards in real time backwards language like David mm -hmm. Lynch mm -hmm. the dwarf mm -hmm. in you know Twin Peaks they can do anything their brains are wired weird yeah exactly exactly and the name of their first album is a clock is a spider missing some legs I dig that a clock is a spider missing some legs so that's my band writing that down I'd, I'd, I'd buy their first album I mean I, I'd want to hear that you know I love Backwoods Speak I still think it's magic you know it's funny is um, that we have uh, today on the show we're going to be talking our second half of the conversation about Michael Heiser's City but as far as titling goes sometimes you just come out with these absolute bangers and A Clock is a Spider Missing Some Legs which I've written down is now the, the front runner for the episode title Thank you. It it is a it is a I think a really uh, well it's it's so it's it's suggestive and interesting on so many levels, and you get in one package phrase the great conflict between mechanism and an organic view of the world. You know, this is the whole. This is part of one of our big big topics. You know, and it's amazing how penetrative and pervasive that schismatic dichotomy is mm -hmm. you know it's 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 there wherever we turn in our civilization yeah, yeah. it's there yeah. you know and it's certainly there in city it's a very very it's one of the powerful things that we'll we'll get to um my my aphorism to kick us off with is 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 kind of simple and it's, it's adaptive in the sense I'm, I'm building on something I heard. Uh, but I think that's, it's, it's kind of a tool and a tip that way. Uh, I'm, I'm getting back into uh, advocating to my students to, to do some mimicking, to do some uh, imitation, and to build on some great things. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. maybe you, you, you do feel <laughs> stuck. And maybe you think, well, geez, I'm, I'm just not, you know, as, you know, as smart as, you know, some of these people. Well, what about taking, you know, a phrase, taking an idea, and just then adding a little bit to that, rather than having to do, um, you know, something from scratch. And you and I, off mic, were talking about architecture and, you know, first homes and the difficulty of always renovating. You know, people are buying, you know, renovating the cheapest house they can get their hands on. That's what I did, mm -hmm. you know. It was an abandoned house. It's, because that's, that's life. You don't just start with, a, you know, a, a 
being able to build your own thing, getting started. And we don't start relationships with someone who's just brand new. They've, they've known someone else. You know, everything is always kind of adaptive and, and renovational. So here is uh, a quotation that uh, I heard on this documentary, it just, but it, I just loved it. It's virtually impossible for beavers to ignore the sound of running water. And I just loved the music of that. I loved everything about it. So I've added to it, I love beavers, you know? And I, I think that's a perfectly good uh, aphorism approach. I mean, the, the total now is, it's impossible for beavers to ignore the sound of running water. I love beavers. I love beavers. That's great. I mean, and who doesn't love beavers, mm -hmm. you know? And, and all that that, you know, of course that suggests, you know, a whole bunch of things. But nevertheless, you still, you know, uh, Frederick Morgan's wonderful book, The American Beaver, is, is one of the great works of natural history uh, going. And so beavers, and talk about interesting builders and cities and the, the notion of having a footprint or a tail slap. You know, they slap the, the, the water with their tails to signal alarm or concern for other beavers. So they're very communal uh, and socially minded. Um, and yet they have environmental impact. And then, of course, there's the wonderful sort of, you know, sexual slang connotations mm -hmm. of beavers, which I still think is one of the funnest words. It is fun. Where does it know? come from? Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, the the sexual slang yes. part. Oh, I think just furry. I think back before you know pubic shaving became you know so concerned. I think it was just anything that was kind of fluffy okay. Okay. and fun. You know, that's 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 hilarious. Yeah. I, I didn't even think about it that way. I'm trying to. Is it the the beaver tail? No, it wouldn't be the tail. I mean, I, I can't. I just can't see it. You know, but uh, that's that is really funny. Just a, a little furry thing. Why not? Why that? Why not a chinchilla? Why not a? Well, I guess maybe a beaver pelt back in the day would just be some hair hanging off someone's belt. I don't know. It's it's all it's all possible. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, a lot a a, a, a rich range of human imagination has gone into. Uh, anything to do with with sex, and certainly, I think the female genitalia has gotten a much better serve than than male. I think it's a lot more interesting in terms yeah, of the balls words. Yeah, is just like okay, uh, could we get less creative? At least in Spanish, it's huevos, which is eggs, which is kind of closer to the shape than I mean, they're not they're or cojones yeah. or it says yeah, here, um, you know. Uh, by 1927, beaver was a British slang perhaps transferred from the earlier meaning a bearded man or directly from the appearance of split beaver pelts. So there we go. Ah, there we go. Okay. Pelt is a lovely like word. word. If, we, if we worry about body hair, I think pelt redeems it because I think, I think of pelts as being lustrous and soft and smooth and cool and, and, and just, pelt. you know, yeah, that's okay. That's yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, romanticism, too, with uh, early American, you know, French trappers. 
I, I love that whole, that whole aesthetic of them being up in the the cold wilds of modern day Canada and North, the northern United States, trapping and you know fighting with Native Americans and stuff. I don't know. It's it's kind of not it's not oh, yeah. something that is really PC to talk about anymore because we have to make sure that we never say that anybody was was cool on the kind of white side of things but i i can't help it I, have you seen the movie the revenant with leonardo dicaprio it's such yes. a such a neat uh-huh. aesthetic yeah. it's one of my favorite movies actually such a the the stunts that dicaprio had to pull in real life to make that happen you know dipping into a freezing canadian river in the middle of winter i mean it's just real commitment you know, of all the movie stars who have you know millions and millions of dollars, for the Revenant alone, I feel like he earned it. The whole cinematography thing in that is quite beautiful. The the the, the cold, lonesome quality of the West and the North, and and some of the real conditions that you know, if we we put aside any PC things and just say, you know, damn it, these those people were hardy. Right. You know, they survived. Right. Mm-hmm. You know. They, they were doing things that we can't even consider today. You know, we really 45 we really degrees, can't. and I'm thinking, oh, it's a bit chilly outside. Yeah, try negative 20, and, <laughs> and you've got to, try, got to try to keep a fire well, going. And the French trappers, you know, really, you know, with you know, heavily laden canoes brought, you know, real, they weirdly brought culture down the river, down the Mississippi River. I mean, why are so many key cities, you know, do they have French names? St. Louis was entirely really constructed by them. I mean, it, it, it boomed to being, you know, a real town and a major, the major city in the world in many ways is a crossroads by the 1850s. But it had really been established by French trappers in, in you know, the European sense. And, and French was, along with Spanish, English was the third mm-hmm. language of yep. St. Louis. Adopted the Civil yep. War. Yep. I love St. Know? Louis. That's one of my uh, favorite cities. Forget they all have that. this great place called the City Museum that's got an outdoor hamster maze uh, constructed completely out of wire that's big enough for adults to go through. But when you look at it, it looks like that old board game mousetrap. You ever seen that? Or, I mean, to, to, oh. to lose a, a step in the metaphor there, it looks like... A really complex hamster cage and you get to climb through it and then you go inside and there are enormous uh, you know human-sized praying mantises and you get to crawl through artificial caves it's a really imaginative and bizarre kind of what uh, I feel like Meow Wolf wants to be you've you've of course been to Meow Wolf as have I and you know the kind of disjointed nature of it I think comes together more organically in the City Museum of St. Louis I think you and I should put together a pitch to Meow Wolf because I feel strongly about that, that, that they're on track with something, but they're missing something. And I think one way to pitch it actually would be to, to do something more uh, children's museum friendly. And, and I'm hoping that you know, you'll get Gus out to these kinds of, of great things that are there because creating environments, and this ties in with our theme of, of Heiser's City, you know, art is as environment, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we need to, to have. It ties back to our, you know, mention of the Kindle thing of being in a tunnel. You're not sort of quite arrived. We, we want to be 
fully within a map, within a realm, you know, and, and have it really uh, a kind of virtual reality in that sense. And, I, and I'm hoping that, that some of these, uh, you know, entertainment organizations that already have a footprint in the world get a little bit more interesting and a little bit more textured in what, what they're trying to yeah. deliver, you know, the content they're trying yeah. to deliver. Um, but this is very apropos uh, to the imaginative challenge for the week uh, because it's, it's about you creating a realm, uh, a world if you like, or a location, a coordinates, you know. But I, th I want to put a really lovely word uh, to it because it ties into something you mentioned before of uh, you were quoting, um, what's, what was her name? Uh, the Map is Not the Journey. The Map is Not the Journey. From last episode. Was that Julia? Um, you mentioned that in the last show or the show before. It's very important. It's, as opposed to The Map is Not the Journey. Oh, yes, you know, yes, We yes, kind yes, of know yes, that. Yes, yes, The Map is Not the Journey. Give me just a moment. Uh, but... The word I want you to think of is destination. 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 And if you look at, if you break down that one word, I think that is one of the uh, keystone words of, of, in English, of the whole human problem because it has destiny built into it with all of its ambiguity about, well, is that predestined? Is that deterministic? Or is that we're creating the journey as we go? I mean, that is the huge question, isn't it? Is it, is it free will and adventure and risk and dire calamity, danger? You know, all of those amazing uh, and scary possibilities. Or is it following a path that's been set out for us? Is it karma? Is it, you know, something that is a little bit more tunnel-like and... Uh, doesn't give us as much latitude, you know, to move in. Uh, but the challenge is, I don't know if you remember, and I, I was, I, I'm too young to remember, uh, the Burma Shave billboard signs that were scattered across America. They were cute little jingle rhyming poems. They were poems. And the billboards were staggered every few miles. This is sort of back in the 50s, the, you know, after Eisenhower created the, the interstate network and America went on the highway and we got fast food, early fast food restaurants and the beginnings of weird roadside culture of, you know, giant cowboys advertising tires and mufflers, the muffler men. And strange attractions, you know, the, the world's biggest iron skillet or the world's biggest rocking chair. All of that crazy roadside Americana optimism, which is, is so appealing in so many ways still. Um, but Burma Shave was, was a, a shaving product, you know, for men. And, uh, but it would always end up with, you know, the tagline was Burma Shave. And Tom Waits wrote one of his most beautiful haunting songs called Burma Shave and he makes it into kind of a mythical destination that this fugitive 
uh, and a girl that he picks up at a filling station somewhere in the Midwest are trying to get to and they have a car accident and never quite arrive and the last line is you know they say that dreams are growing wild just this side of Burma shave and I think it's it's Waits's finest moment as, as a poet um, and that's saying a lot because I think he started off as, as a really fabulous late beat poet uh, as well as an interesting songwriter um, so I want you to create a mythical American destination like Burma Shave. And we've got some, we, implicitly we've got character, I mean a journey means characters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, some, mm-hmm. of some kind. So somebody's going somewhere for some reason and maybe they get there and maybe they don't. But you've got a destination to create and some mythos. We need to be, you know, thinking about that we're all capable of mythic thinking again. This is what people are scared they're not. Then they feel, you know, really not up to the, ta- the task. So they sit on the couch and order more pizza. Uh, but if we took on that challenge of saying, yeah, look, we're, we're, we come from, from mythic people. We've got that in our DNA. We can do that. We can do that. Um, we can create a mythic, mythic destination and get uh, a small tribe or even a couple or even a lone individual out on the road, you know, the road to Damascus, the road to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Xanadu, the road to Burma Shave, you know, it's, it's a destination. And whether or not they get there is up to you. So a little bit vague around the edges but the the idea of the journey that has a momentum and a vector all to itself mm-hmm. so i'm giving you a vector got it the quote was by uh ursula Le Guin, by the way I believe oh was so. it i looked it up i looked it I up online it was... and I'm, I'm getting phyllis someone or other but i don't know who that is no it's part of a longer quote and you've mentioned this woman before and she's an important she's a kind of a a female counterpart to terence mckenna and i'm i'm just drawing a blank just in the moment um very important evolutionary thinker Donna Harland. um uh yeah that's who i thought but maybe it was it might have been done i in I any case Donna the Hanley idea all the time so that wouldn't be surprising yeah yeah it's an important, uh, it's a good uh, execution of my um, beaver aphorism of taking uh, a phrase, taking an idea, and just twisting it a little bit. Because I think the map is not the journey, is a lot more interesting than the map is not the terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you will take us on a map and a journey uh, to a destination that you'll create. This one's challenging. I like it. I was just right, jotting down a few notes before we get started. But, okay. A mythical journey across America to something. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It could be a lost burial ground, the mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. you know, a strange uh, old nightclub where some 
bizarre crime took place in Oklahoma's history or I don't know anything you know you I, I just always uh, I, I I just love what you come up with yeah. you know and I think the idea that that we we can come up with things in real time that resonate mm-hmm. uh, it's possible and, and and we want to remind people that it you know if we give ourselves a few of these challenges we, we find new aspects of ourselves you know and that's really the whole purpose of being mm-hmm. here you know mm-hmm. it's it's not to deploy resources and abilities it's to discover them you know all right I've got it I think I've got it all right cool so today we okay. are continuing our discussion about uh, the city Michael Heiser's city and I found our last episode to be my personal favorite that we've done so far um, because and I should have guessed this about you but I, I have to but I didn't know this about you but your your level of art critique is off the charts I think that last episode really functions well as a as a deep dive inquisitive expansive uh, very elegant journey through this city that Michael Heiser put together so all of that is preamble to say that I'm excited for where it goes I believe you had two big broader points that you wanted to discuss and so I'll, I'll turn that over to you yeah yeah I did well thank you for the comments about last episode and, and as, a, as a note of encouragement for listeners I chanced to go back to review my transcripts from college for some odd reason and I noticed that the, the, the only two courses that I didn't really perform to the top of my level uh, geography and art history, two of my great life interests. <laughs> That's and so funny. I think that over time, it is, isn't it? it really hit me. It really hit me. And I remember being, when I looked at the, you know, the, the transcript, I, I had some, some recollections of those courses and how disappointed I was in the instruction, but how excited I was in the subject areas. And I think that with all of us, we need to keep alive our interests over the course of our lives and keep finding our capabilities within those fields. Stay open, mm-hmm. stay interested, um, because our, our, our aptitudes will, will come forward in time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they, they really will. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to, I, I thought we had a really good discussion uh, laying the groundwork, and that metaphor is so appropriate to the notion of land art generally, but certainly this constructed city, which is in this really quite uh, special uh, Nevada Valley. It's not typical of, of the Nevada landscape as, as you might see it. It's not the kind of, of environment where you would go shoot a, you know, a, an alternative planet or a fake moon landing mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. It, it, it's quite a beautiful uh, situation. It is remote and it's not connected to, to services. So Heiser has over time at his, his little adjacent ranch put in solar and, and there are wells. There's quite a, a deep aquifer 
So there's actually water, and that's, of course, what makes the, the valley so lovely. It, there is a sense of, oh, there's some green, you know, um, in what otherwise might be, you know, high mountain desert. But I, I made the, uh, the remark <clears throat> last time, and I, it's something I've been wanting to explore myself, uh, that I felt that there was fun, something fundamental about his construction that is masculine in nature. And I, I felt intuitively that that was more than just, oh, okay, well, it involves earth-moving equipment and heavy machinery, which we associate with males, historically, anyway. And I think that is changing, but nevertheless, I felt it was something more than, than that. And, and yet, when I reflect back on the experience of walking the city, and this is a, a, you know, this is a kind of artwork that can't be experienced in that uh, viewing distance sense of like, oh, I'm going to line up to see the Mona Lisa in a glass case in the mm-hmm. Louvre. You know, it's not like that at all. It's completely immersive. And... As uh, Lawrence Weschler says of, of uh, Robert Irwin's work, his conclusion and the payoff of the beautiful book we featured in our um, book club, uh, art is what happens to the viewer. You know, it is not inherent in the object or the creation, uh, and it's it's an intersection. There's a kind of a Venn diagram overlap of where the the viewer steps out of that passive mode and becomes part right. of of the the creation. I think that is important. So with City we're dealing with something that it does seem like a, a an explicitly artificial creation in this Nevada desert valley. The the surrounding mountains are particularly jagged and, and mountain-like. They're not soft, you know, breast forms. They're much more uh, tactical. And, and there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of violence mm-hmm. to them, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the light makes, softens that. Um, but I got to see a near full moon rise and that revealed different things. They're, they're very different to um, the mountains around, immediately around my house, which have a little bit more softness to them. But nonetheless, they're, they're mountains. You know, they really are. There's a statement about them geometrically. There's, Heiser took great trouble to create these rolling, gentle curves. And there is uh, what I termed horizon management, which I think is a kind of a nice phrase. Uh, I didn't think too long about that. I was just, that was my experience walking around. That you have a very controlled sense of, of the valley and these mountains and other things that you can see. Line of sight, line of sight has been really carefully managed. And you get these undulations of of gravel and uh, really impacted uh, earth all from around there. He didn't bring in anything new. He did create uh, or synthesize his own sort of mix of a kind of cement 
uh, based product, which is a really granular, uh, big textured uh, kind of, of uh, concrete, and, and that's not doing it justice. It, it's, uh, but it seems very real. It's not at all like the materials they use on the fake or ersatz uh, Vegas, you know, casinos of, of you know, the, the simulating Egypt mm -hmm. or something. You know, it's nothing like, it's very real. But there's this, these soft geometric uh, counterpoints to the, the very harsh geometric, uh, as in right-angled, uh, forms of the major structures. And there's a really interesting dialectic conversation uh, counterpoint going on there. So the play of if we can understand my use of male and female here in very, very archetypal terms, very archetypal terms, there is this, this gentle organic sense of the curvature of the walkways and these hills, these constructed hills that control line of sight. And then you get a couple of major structures that are kind of Mayan brutalist uh, J.G. Ballard uh, forms that are suggestive of stadia mm -hmm. or um, you know the major you know like the the Mayan um, uh, pyramid temple you know ziggurat kind of things but very abstract very abstract still very uh, implicit very suggestive uh, and there's a weird thing here too which is what I, I wanted to throw open to you about because uh, the takeout is very peculiar it touches on our earlier discussions about Atlantis because walking around you can't decide or I couldn't decide but I think this would be a general uh, response are we looking at abstractions of a ruined city or an incomplete city that is still forming and I found that really interesting I have not had that artistic experience on the scale of being able to walk around within it the the conflict between ruins the loss the past some sort of hint of an earlier uh, incarnation as opposed to something evolving emerging and like walking into a film that's still forming, you know, old darkroom days of a, you know, a film developing in the tray. And I was torn between those two experiences. And that to me is the, the tension between the archetypally masculine nature of the main structures, if you like, and the female, archetypal female designs of the infrastructure, if you like, the, the curvature of the roadways, the, the, the larger uh, shaping and lines of sight. Uh, but what do you think about this idea of being stuck between two totally different, one going into the past, a sense of ruins and hearkening back to lost cities, and another being in a kind of working you know, model in, in evolutionary development of a future city, of something that is yet to grow and, and be built. I think that's a fascinating idea. I am interested in, so is the masculine side of things the 
the the more ruinous end of things and the 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 female is the more ordered you mentioned curvature of the roads is that the dichotomy between those two I suppose so, but I think you'd have to say the masculine uh, structures, which are the ones that get photographed. Okay. This is th- these. The, there are two key areas, and they're uh, in a kind of if you imagine a clock face. And I'm not suggesting the whole thing is completely a giant ovoid, but if it were, at at uh, at, at twelve and six o'clock are the two major uh, structures, if you like, which are concrete and geometrical and are, uh, are based on triangles and cubes and, and uh, you know, rectangular, linear shapes. Uh, they are the ones that will get photographed. They, are, they have photographic entrance, mm-hmm. as uh, people say. It's much harder to capture the curvature of the roads, the horizon management issues. You can do that if you were to document it, and photography is, is not allowed and will be formally controlled. But it's much harder to get that because it's, it's subtle and experiential. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best thing, I, the, the way to say it, is the archetypal male thing is not so much just suggestive of the ruin. It is, that you're right that that is, but it's also, um, that's where the most intentional, uh, structural, positive, you know, uh, and there's no sense here at all in any way, I don't want to in any way imply that there's uh, a suggestion of, of simulating ruins at all. That's not what's going on. These are pure abstract geometric forms that draw on and, and trigger references to uh, the the great cities of, of particularly Mexico and Central America, um, some of the, the classic you know Greek uh, architecture, but more probably Mesoamerica and Mesopotamia than uh, than Greek mm-hmm. or Roman or European, you know. Um, but did that answer that it question? Did. It's yeah. it's. Yeah. It, it's only ruins in a peculiar sense of absence of what's there. Okay, here's, here's another sort of angle of entry into this. The drive from Vegas up to city now, which is about two and a half hours, is a very different experience than when Michael Heiser started 50 years ago. There's a lot of industrial development. There's the speedway you know, where NASCAR and all these events happen. There's uh, all these big warehouses, you know, Amazon Prime and all this. There's a big, a giant auctioneer with all of this weird machinery and and stuff. There's a lot of unbuilt roads or half-finished concrete overpasses and runways. And you're, 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 the experience up there is you're already exposed to some of these questions of, is this a, uh, an area of human development, human-made architectural construction in, in impact on the land? Is it in progress in a developmental sense, or is it in progress in a ruination, uh, collapse mm-hmm. sense? Very J.G. Ballard-like right. in that way of, of what's going on. Right. Um, he's... His beautiful story, My Dream of Flying to Wake Island, is a, is a good touchstone. I listened to uh, 
that on the way up. And it, it, it has a lot of connections with that. So you have these ramps and these the sense of what was you know, what was the purpose of that? So you do have a sense wandering around. If you looked at this, if you found this in the future, you would wonder, well, what were the people like who lived here? Yeah. You know? And that's no no question that Heiser, you know, had that in mind. Uh but of course that plays into the next issue of well there are no people living here this is a gated it's a gated community of invisible people it it's another one of these secret sort of facilities like area 51 and what's going on is very hard to determine it's even more exotic and bizarre than area 51 we think they're building just really interesting you know dangerous weird scary aircraft and drones and you know nerve gas and stuff like that there well we're not really sure at all what what the purpose of city is you know it's but there is no color uh there's no vegetation uh all of that stops on the boundary um i i would think it would be perfectly fair for someone of a certain mindset to say well this is a very sterile environment it's kind of a giant mausoleum or necropolis uh so that was another conflict that i it's unavoidable mm-hmm. you know what is the nature of a city uh i mean you think of clanging swarming teeming you know think of the uh, it's i don't know it's hispanic heritage month so you think of like you know mexico city for instance and think oh my god you know all this color and life and noise and confusion and you know smells of cooking and you know traffic and fighting and weird you know all these different kinds of music and you know people you know dying and making love and stealing and you know all of the stuff that humans do uh well none of that's happening there's an absolute eerie silence and so it, it opens up the question, and I think this is a good throwback to you here, of what in very archetypal, symbolic, emblematic, sigil terms does a city mean to you? And what might be an example of, of the one that comes first to mind? Or alternatively, if you had to design the basis of a city where would you start what might be the first thing that you would design it's kind of it pretty open a, i like the idea of the city as a sigil because as you were talking i was thinking about the relationship between ruins and a sort of future incomplete uh, project which is really a good thing to keep in mind with any art project that you're making that it's headed for a ruination and it will also never quite be complete. Doesn't mean you don't put the work in. Doesn't mean you don't spend 50 years building this thing that you want to create. But those two principles, I think, are interesting to carry forward. On the sigil front, while you were talking, I couldn't help but think that, you know, a sigil is meant to, well, in some ways at least, this isn't the only way sigils can be used, but in some ways, a sigil is a kind of fail-safe or a tripwire to either trigger something to happen or to keep it from happening. 
And the idea of this sterile, eerie, silent city, you have that great phrase there, like a city of invisible people, uh, seems to me on a sigil magic type of basis to be uh, triggering triggering the emptiness of an actual ruined city perhaps so that a real city doesn't have to become emptied to achieve the same effect now if i when i think about cities in sigilistic terms it's so interesting because i was talking to my wife yesterday about the similarity of downtowns and i recently purchased a book called sand future all about the Japanese architect whose name escapes me right now, who's essentially responsible for that very American down... If you've ever been to downtown Dallas or downtown Denver or really downtown anywhere, it's all very similar in a way that I would say areas of London or Paris that I've been to are not. Uh, because, you know, it's much more planned. There's a thought process behind the whole thing. So... With cities, it really depends. It depends on the nature of it. So you have Oklahoma City, for example, which is the largest uh, city by area in the lower 48. Of course, you have uh, you know Juneau and Fairbanks are have a wider area, but but that's mostly wilderness. So Oklahoma City is spread out as such so that you can go from downtown and you can drive not even five miles to the east and be in farmland that is still within Oklahoma City city limits. That's interesting to me because that's how Oklahoma feels to me. Remember I was telling you before we started recording about how the weather is is always shifting to these kind of extremes. It's, it's very hot and then all of a sudden we're in the mid-40s. That is reflected in the, the design of Oklahoma City. You go from urban to country and then back to urban again to suburban Whereas if you go to a city, again, like London or Paris, these cities that have kind of been built on top of their previous selves, Mexico City is a perfect example of this too, right? They're always, I read recently that uh, archaeologists discovered, uh, you know, an, an Aztec tomb in the basement of a tattoo shop in Mexico City, because everything's just sort of, that's just that beautiful. Great? everything is just stacked on top of itself. So I think that when you look at something like Oklahoma City, which again is, is much younger compared to some of these other places, and you know it's not a it's not a very industrious city. Um, there are a few. There's a Goodyear plant down in Lawton, and there are uh, I think there's a Raytheon plant nearby here. Um, but overall, it's very much a, a city that seems to function based solely on. The, the, the people who keep the city going itself. So, you know, blue-collar workers who just sort of keep up everything for a purpose that really escapes me. I don't know, to host Oklahoma City Thunder Games, maybe? I'm not sure. But when you have um, cities that have existed for a long time and have had, you know, great cultural impact, there is a feeling of them having circulatory systems within them. I felt this when I was visiting Seoul as well. Now Seoul obviously has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And 
the imprints of the previous city, the ghost imprints of the previous city, are still there in, in the new. And Oklahoma City doesn't quite have that yet. There's kind of a lingering melancholy to it because of, I, I would guess, the treatment of Native Americans all across Oklahoma. So there's a kind of psychic scar that's still here, but not necessarily the more chunky, substantial, uh, you know, sedimentary layer of ghost cities that you find in, in some of these other places. That's, oh, so many interesting things there. Uh, well, I'll just go through the thoughts that you triggered in, in kind of order. I was thinking of other examples of very intentional, relatively uh, new or, or modern cities that, that have been created and are kind of openly artificial created cities without a past history. Because that's the key point, I think, that you, 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 you're, you're getting to. Uh, Brasilia, I think, is an interesting one. Uh, and Canberra, the, the capital of Australia. Both of those have a peculiar kind of... I mean, if you, if you wanted to shoot a, a certain kind of science fiction movie, uh, both those offer sort of some interesting backdrops. I like your, your mention of, of cities that have managed to survive being destroyed and rebuilt. Uh, I felt when I, I visited Hiroshima, I, I, I felt a very uh, just immense sense of power and strangeness in that idea. And that, all, I, I think, underlying that point that you've made, and the, and the world's great cities, that's exactly right. They have layers. They have almost, well... As geology, we see layers in mountains. There's an archaeological layering that's very profound in the world's great cities. And, and we don't know what we would dig up, you know. Uh, and all of these strange uh, bedfellows that end up of, you know, something, you know, amazing terracotta soldiers discovered, you know, in, a, in a rest, the basement of a restaurant or a tattoo parlor that is, a, you know, a doorway to an ancient lost civilization you know those wonderful possibilities but the cities managed to be destroyed and rebuilt because there's some sort of genius of place i love that expression a genius of place we've kind of lost that that used to be a very common phrase of a an inhabiting spirit uh of that really you know was there in in that coordinate system not just geographical coordinates but somehow psychogeographical mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and oftentimes you know because of of the location of the cities you know a great river or it was a crossroads uh and there are reasons behind why that location remained important and why people would go to the trouble of of rebuilding from the rubble um and that is missing in, in the, the why of it being there and any reference to its own reason for ooh, being ooh, there a, is not really ooh, it's, clear. It's a city you know? without, without purpose. Oh, isn't that an interesting reflection on people in this century? That cities built... I'm th when you brought that up, I was thinking of Dubai which is a completely astral yes. city. My sister-in-law went there, as a matter of fact, and everything is brand spanking new. There's not a bit of 
wabi-sabi to the architecture at all. Versus, I mean, you can even, like, no matter how we feel about its inhabitants, you can you get this same feeling from Portland, Oregon, which was a logging community. Very important river town. The Willamette runs directly through it. Industry, purpose. Uh, and then you go, you look at pictures of Dubai, and you're like, oh, the purpose of this is to is to just perpetuate this zombie capitalist system that died 50 years ago, right? <laughs> it's, that's interesting. I think Dubai is a very good analog in terms of, of the purpose question, absolutely. There's something very, very peculiar uh, at work there. It, it really is quite, quite odd. And I mean, in, in Heiser's case, I mean, I think the reason is that, that there was a beautiful, it was a, it's a beautiful valley, so he wanted to live there. He could afford the land bought that 50 years ago he would have gotten that for you know a really great price because he's not sort of someone of enormous financial means and he's gone bankrupt many times you know over the course of building the city so he's he's done a lot of hard work and it's not like you know someone of, of bill gates's means just going doing something it's much more outsider artist than that but i think the practical reason was that 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 was what he could afford the, the aquifier nature and the fact that there is water there. Uh, for me, I was looking at the kinds of things that I would have done building my city. And I would have looked to, um, if, if not the science fiction mythal, mythic heritage of Nevada in terms of Area 51, I probably, I understand why he let that go. And that hadn't been as prominent in cultural mythology 50 years ago. And he might not be interested in that at all. Uh, but I think I would have been interested in the deeper ancient uh, geology and biogeology of, of the dinosaurs, of the ichthyosaurs. This was an enormous uh, inland sea, a warm sea. And so some of the giant marine reptiles like Plysosaurs, which is what we think the Loch Ness Monster might be, uh, and Ichthyosaurs, like really, you know, giant, aggressive, carnivorous dolphins, you know, <laughs> that's not a good look. I don't want to be out of my life raft, my Zodiac life raft, when the Ichthyosaurs are around. I might have done something with that. And there is a ghost town, uh, old gold mine called Berlin Ichthyosaur, which is on about the same latitude. Uh, maybe a little bit north, but just just east. That is uh, all about ichthyosaurs, and I've I've been on a, a, a I volunteered to do a, a dig there, and you know you're finding fossils, you're finding trilobites, yeah. and and stuff, and I think I would have I would have found it very difficult not to have some sort of reference of mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but your, your, the mention of, of Dubai, I think, so it, if we look at these very intentional uh, cities, Dubai, Brasilia, Canberra, there's a kind of uh, artificial quality to them, and AstroTurf is probably a very appropriate uh, association there, where they're not, they, there's, there's a strange lack of, uh, reason mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for them. There's certainly the intention and the design is there and there are some cool things. I mean, Dubai has some, some really interesting 
aspects mm-hmm. to it. But I think that it's very difficult to find something more alienating as a place to be than the Dubai airport at I mean, three in at, the morning. Look at Dubai you from know? an aerial view. The photos I've seen from the top down, it's just, it's arid desert. And then a metropolis. Yeah. By the way, I snuck a peek online here and my intuitions were correct. So here's the difference in what we're talking about. So Tulsa, which has that ghostly feel to it, was established because it was uh, because of oil deposits. Tons and tons of oil were there. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma City, though it eventually became one of the aviation centers of the United States, was settled simply as a settlement for its own for just because just because basically isn't that strange that we can feel that intention behind these cities it's just kind of in them yeah yeah well i i think that i think that is a deep aesthetic philosophical and ultimately the meaning of culture type of question that that we're we're interested in at large uh and and with i mean with Oklahoma as a state and, 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 and Tulsa as, as a city, you know, you mentioned the Native American sort of history. Of course, Tulsa has a very dark history in terms of African Americans. Uh, that you can understand, in a sense, that Heiser's creation doesn't have any history and, and doesn't reference anything. And maybe that is a deep, uh, not only intention, but, a, but an achievement of it you know what happens to the idea of a city when you you strip all that out but what about the basic question of when we look at you know people who have theorized about cities lewis mumford's book on the nature of cities i think still remains a great uh connection between architecture and culture uh but if we don't have people or if the people are invisible what does that say about a city? Is, is that in itself a profound philosophical paradox, contradiction that's way beyond any kind of art creation? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, is that the real magic and the deeper purpose and the deeper message or suggestive call to inquiry that Heiser's engaged with? Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, what is a city if you take out, out away all the people? Well, isn't it ruins? Yeah. That's hard to say because a ruin suggests uh, something that once was and is no more uh, or is something different from what it was at first. But this question of the city with no people, man, that really is you've really unlocked something here that I'm going to have to think about this some more because you have one man, of course, with workers, but one man's vision of creating a city that not only doesn't house any people, but really in our lifetimes, very few people will even see it. And yet it's a city itself. So is that, I mean, is that suggesting that a city is a collection of architectural shapes? arranged in such a way that it that it could be traversed by people i think that's that's a surprisingly nihilistic and kind of spooky idea of what a city is if that's what he's getting at 
I think that's beautifully said. I think those those spooky and nihilistic, I think, are great ways to think of that. And I think, uh, unfortunately, this is the, the colloquial uh, idea, the street level sort of idea of, of what a city is, that it's a set of buildings and architectural parameters which we then inhabit and, and go to. It's a context we fulfill. It's a slot we, we, we fit into rather than something that we are creating with our psychic energy and presence and you know commerce and trade and, and hopes and longings and crimes and you know it, it it's it's surprisingly lacking in agency uh, and I think the deeper uh, problem with the, the point that you make is that not only is that an, an incredibly uh, dark and empty notion of what a city is just on its own, I think it's emblematic of our larger vision of what, what civilization yeah. is. Because you go to any definition of a civilization and you almost instantly find mm -hmm. cities, the mention mm -hmm. of cities. If you don't have cities, you're not a civilization. Right, right. right. You know? Might be. Uh, and, and that's a problem. It might be interesting you know? to contrast the city and the slum because a, a slum... We often think of it as the rundown, poor part of town, and it often is, but the technical meaning of the word slum is just buildings that are created outside of any real plan, a kind of organic outgrowth. Usually when you see slums, whether they're in Brazil or South Africa or even the United States, it's things, it's, it's cities that are created out of scrap metal and, you know, held together with spit and duct tape and because it's it's built for an express purpose, which is human habitation. And um, while I personally wouldn't ever like to live in a slum, we might think of the idea of like, perhaps some of our cities, we need to slum our cities a bit and add some some humanity, some, some people power to these things, these big, I'm, I, I know I keep going back to the downtowns, but I I feel like, downtown America and Michael Heiser's city have much more in common than people might initially think. They're often very empty, sterile. I have no idea what goes on in those buildings. The buildings are very big and imposing, but to my mind, at least, to the outside observer, largely purposeless. They don't seem like they're inhabited by people. So, yeah. I, I think these are legitimate problems. And there's an interesting element in what you just said that I think is so important. And it is something that, that is categorically uh, absent. And I'm not, I'm not sure it's part of the intentional absence. I mean, Heiser's whole work is about absence and inversion and minimalism and certain, you know, what's subtracted, what's excised. Uh, and that's different than what's been not included or not thought of. Um, when we think of the world's great cities and, and what a colorful city is, I think we, we think of the capacity for neighborhoods, for districts that have their own flavor. And, you know, there, there are sometimes, you know, the old joke, you know, Hollywood is a, you know, is a set of, you know, buildings looking for a city, you know. Uh, but you think of the of, of cities, you know, like New Orleans or uh, well, any great world city that we really 
I love William Burroughs' descriptions of, of Tangier. You know, it's this incredible sense of, of the intermittence of the city that it seems to change shape like that uh, Dark City science fiction movie, uh, which is a great movie. I should see that again. Um, you know, cities that change shape because of the dreams of the people who were there and the buildings actually reform and there's new statues and whole, whole neighborhoods go missing and then they reappear. And that sort of dynamic, hallucinogenic, surreal, uh, but organic nature of, of possibility. Um, but I, in walking away, I had two moments of, 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 of thinking about other, two other cities so different from each other. I thought of being in Shanghai, uh, you know, this massive, just massive of so many contradictions. And, and a whole city, there has been a whole city built since I've been there. Uh, and probably another one yet again, because they do things quickly there. Uh, between the airport, and which is about, a, it's a long way from the city. Uh, but you've got these amazing Jetson Tinker Toy, extravagant, strange, ultra-modernist, you know, Asian buildings downtown right on the river. And then you've got, you know, bamboo scaffolding, bamboo scaffolding used on other buildings going up. But you can look out a window of the Radisson Hotel over the main gardens by the, the city museum, and there's a whole culture of street people, beggars who are living in the bushes, and no one refers to them. The Chinese get, you know, they get cleaned out from time to time. No one wants to know or acknowledge about them because, of course, you know, the Chinese government doesn't want to admit they have anything like a homeless problem. Um, but I also thought of a moment in Darwin, in the Northern Territory of Australia, a tropical city of, you know, concrete. And it, it just, it's a very, very, you know, it's a J.G. Ballard resort city built in mangrove swamps with a very ancient past. And at one point in my advertising life, I was giving this, uh, uh, presentation to uh, some telecommunications company executives. I was in this very sleek boardroom and it, it, it really felt like something out of a movie because down in the park they just couldn't control the tropical vegetation and they'd given that away and so they'd let that area be wild, you know? And that, I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And right at this key moment of the presentation, right on cue, and visible to everybody at this uh, rainforest teak board table, which was a, an environmental sort of disaster, but really beautiful looking. Uh, I made a point and up out of the, the grasses and the strange vegetation rose this whole group of indigenous people who were just camping out there. You know, the ancient inhabitants and custodians and disenfranchised homeless people of the city and it was it was choral you know it was symphonic it was like a theatrical moment of this is the real spirit of place you know and if you'd heard didgeridoo music or a bull roar at that time it would have just been the 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 icing on the whole thing and none of those 
moments are possible in, in Heiser City. There are no districts, there are no neighborhoods. It's not just the, uh, the absence of, of people and culture and history and the commentary on that. It's also an absence of, of boundary and parameter and shape. And there's a very pleasing, soothing sense in walking around that, that if you get used to it. I think some people would find it alienating. I found it very soothing. But it, it's like, you know, listening to Arab music without, you know, a time signature or a frame that we're used to. And it can be meditative, but it's also emptying, mm -hmm. you know? It, it really... It, and, and that's, that's psychologically challenging. Um, but it's certainly a very odd commentary on the nature of what we mean by a city. Uh, and it, it would extend, I, I really didn't feel that it was uh, uh, a female uh, directed environment. There was a moment where one of the six people, uh, a woman, um, was walking and in the distance. So it, there's a good reason to have only six people on board because it really, it, it cools out how many people you see and it makes anyone you do see seem sculptural and part of it. But she had this lovely diaphanous scarf and she was holding it up kind of like wings over her head, you know. Uh, and it was quite a beautiful image in, in the distance. And yet it was very, very, there was nothing like that. I mean, I would have had like some fabric, like parachute fabric and, you know, things changing shape in the wind and I maybe a sound garden thing. You know, I, I would be adding to my city. I wouldn't, I'd, I'd, I'd find the fossils and something to do with the ichthyosaurs, hard to, to miss, but I'd certainly have some sort of sound garden thing happening and some fabric changing shape, but no. No, absolutely not. Not there at all. And, and no differentiation, really, of, of district and neighborhood uh, in any kind of uh, conventional sense. Wow. But so there's, there's a lot going on there. And I, I think in, in closing up, uh, what, the, what city might mean mm. And what it means to us, to those who will not get a chance to visit it, because I hope they do keep uh, faith to this program of only six people uh, per day, and, and it won't be open every day per year. Um, but it will be tempting to draw a lot of conclusions from the authorized photographs and the eventual beautiful documentary, which will be shot with some drones and... Uh, will, you know, be exquisite to look at and will create the illusion of having experienced the city. Uh, I think one message is, is it won't. Uh, that we do need to get back to a physical uh, meat and bone sense of art and get exposed to things as directly as possible. We need to expose our young people to art that isn't just on screen that is dimensional mm. and that's the, so important you know if you look 
in pure painting terms, you know, you look at a, a Rothko in, in even some of these gorgeous Taschen art books, which are produced to the finest printing quality you can imagine, they still have nothing on the real experience of just a, even a, a minute or two alone with one of his major works, you know, and which is hard to come by. But just we need to remember that these things were physically created and city is immensely physically created. Hundreds of people have worked on this over 50 years. That is something that there's a story behind it that I would like to see them develop a little bit more fully and have a kind of, I think I mentioned last time, a kind of time-lapse thing of, of, of even just still photographs of all the people who worked on it. But art is about physicality of, of engagement with the physical world first. And that's why it has the conceptual, emotional, psychological, spiritual power. You know, you can't go the other way. Uh, but there are two things that I think that, that uh, are a good way to close this. And in our, our, our real tribute to, to Michael Heiser's genius and his immense commitment, which just can't be underestimated because... I mean, any time I hear some artist friend complaining about, oh, there's another revision of this manuscript, and I'm really sweating it out, I just want to say, get yeah, real. Stop it. You know, you don't just have any... It. Yeah. You, you, you haven't broken your body with dangerous equipment and noxious fumes and suffered for 50... You know, get off it. There are people who are really committed, and we, we need to remember, too, the wonderful group of outsider artists that we've mentioned who have battled mental illness and disenfranchisement at pretty ugly levels to create beauty. And beauty out of ugliness is the theme. And if you've taken on board the, the title of artist, in your mind at least, that's the challenge. So get over the problems and get with the joy of creating when, when there are moments of joy, because there are a lot of setbacks, of course. But two things that really, I think, are are amazing achievements that could have gone totally wrong. Uh, Heiser is a very eccentric individual. There's no question that he has a, a very pronounced sense of ego. There's no doubt about that. And I don't think he would make any apology for it. But yet in walking around over three hours and the immense change of light, this fabulous shadow garden if there is an organic nature to city, it's in terms of the light and the shadows. And it may be a beautiful uh, creation in that way that is unrivaled uh, by human hands in, in, in modern times anyway. I never once got the feeling that I was embedded in an ego monument. Mm. I didn't mm -hmm. get that feeling at all. I got a really... As, as harsh and geometrical as some aspects of it were, I did get a sense of welcome. I got a sense of, of being somewhere bigger than any one individual and that this was not a Michael Heiser theme park in any way. And I don't think that is very common. I think that, you know, you walk around Disneyland and you think of all of the the people who've been involved, the millions of people who visited any of the Disney facilities. You think of all the imagination and creation and, and, and real uh, amazing talents that have been involved. 
And it still feels like a monument to me, to, to one individual, to a particular mindset. And of course, it's hopelessly commercialized, etc. But I, I think he, Heiser really does transcend ego in a very paradoxical way, because nothing could be more of a statement. I mean, he built a city next to uh, his ranch, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that could that could have gone a different way. Um, the other thing that I think from a, an art history aesthetic point of view, which is much bigger than his one creation or anything that he's done individually, because this is not the only thing he's done by any means. Uh, I think he transcends what I call the Oldenburg problem, named after Klaus Oldenburg, who's a sculptor that many people would have heard of and some people think very highly of. Uh, He's most famous for really a simple conceptual idea, which I think uh, is something of just kind of a, a gag of taking mundane, ordinary objects and just making giant versions of them. Uh, that's a little unfair to him, and I think it's certainly unfair to the, uh, the execution of, of that. Anyone could say, well, you know, I can make a giant paperclip, and, you know, uh, it looks like a huge snowshoe or something, you know. Yeah, but you have to go do it, and you have to get the commission, and you have to, you know, make it happen, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, don't do it just in Photoshop. Do it in the real world. So I don't mean to be critical of Oldenburg that way. But I think there is a question of where scale alone becomes the, the signal characteristic of a work. And to me, that's not intellectually or artistically or um, psycho-spiritually sufficient to really retain my interest or gain my respect. And I think Heiser really does transcend that. It is important that that city takes up the footprint that it does. If it were a half the size, it would be different. You know, there's no question about that. But yet, what he does is really break down some real deep grammars of intuitive, unarticulated thoughts about scale. Which, which relate directly back to our own body size, mm-hmm. you know, our height, mm-hmm. our weight, our footprint, our physical orientation, mm-hmm. you know. He breaks, he gives us a way of just having that completely dissolve. And my final takeout, and I think a good way to, to leave our discussions on this, I felt a little bit as if, I was something dissolving in not water, but some bigger sense of substance that I hadn't been aware of. Space, time, culture. And I got a little bit of a chance to dissolve and reform. And I think that is a wonderful gift to come out of a work of art. And I do think that that is an immense, immense achievement uh, with all of the reservations. And I really hope that, that he gets the, the level of criticism that we've kind of suggested and outlined because we don't want people just going ooh and ah. And uh, I, I, I don't think his work has been um, 
reviewed and analyzed and discussed and appreciated uh, with a level of, of sophistication that, that it deserves. Uh, we did mention Michael uh, Govan, the uh, director of the uh, LA County Museum, who's been his biggest advocate. I recommend people check out that YouTube lecture uh, because it's, it's very insightful and it's also for anyone who is involved in creative practice. It's what you hope to find. We all want an advocate uh, and an explicator of that level of sophistication, care, uh, and, and also critical edge. You know, I think that's, if we're legitimate, we do want critical edge. We don't want just a backslap of, oh my God, Dave, that's just so great. How did you mm -hmm. do that? You know, that's not what you're doing anything for. Uh, and you want people to somehow inhabit and to be able to walk around in what you're doing. So if nothing else, Heiser has created a very active metaphor that is somewhere on the borderland between the mechanistic and the organic, between the ruined and the evolutionary future possibility and certainly a crossroads of its own to question. You know, it doesn't have the crossroads river, the ancient crossroads river sense of, of purpose and obvious locale, but it's creating its own crossroads place and moment for us to ask, what do we really mean by a city as sigil of civilization? How active agents are we in that process? Are we just spectators? Are we ants within the big ant farm? Uh, or is our presence, our psychoactive presence, somehow vitally important to the presence of the larger whole? Wow. Awesome. That lived up to my expectations. And I think that will probably be the definitive critique so far of Michael Heiser's city. We'll have to see what comes down the pipeline, but thanks for that. That was very cool. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was really, uh, you, you, you very correctly and empathetically uh, understood that this was a very important uh, visit for me to make. And, and not just because it's relatively close to me, but... but there's a whole there. Are, there are a lot of reasons of why I'm close to it, you know, uh, and there's a whole lot of, of reference points there, and it's 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 terribly inspiring. And I think there are a lot of conflicts, and it's again a reminder that when we get excited and engaged with art or thought or other people or or locations, uh, there is a complexity of response, you know. And, and being overwhelmed or being ambivalent uh, is, is a very exciting experience to be, uh, you know, all the corporations are now talking about being disruptive, you know, in a kind of, uh, they're thinking that's a cool new word to use. And of course, they don't want to be disruptive of anything. They want to take as few risks as possible and, you know, meet approval as much as possible. But it's, it's good to be upset in your thinking, to have... Uh, paradigms really just jangled, you know, and and to really have to think, well, I, I don't, I don't know, 
what my response is to this. It's it's too rich and too mysterious for me to really say it in one you know one go. And uh, thank you for for the opportunity to to look into this over two episodes. Uh, I think the the depth of, of the topic is is worth it, and I hope listeners feel the same way. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, on that note. Want to hear my road trip to Mythic America? I think I I think we that that's the perfect segue. We're we're ready for that off ramp to wherever you're taking okay. us. Okay, awesome. Well, Carl Sagan once said that if you want to bake an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. To go on our road trip, you just have to make an apple pie. So, you can't be stingy. We're not talking about a hostess joint here. We're talking about a real apple pie that you leave out to cool on the window. What you do is you take that apple pie to the middle of the Utah salt flats. And if you wander around for a day and a night, you'll find an ultramarine top hat sitting very calmly, very patiently, waiting for you to deposit that apple pie. Once you do, the top hat will think for a bit and send you on a quest. And that quest will take you down a road that is lined with diners, Sinclair gas stations, roadside attractions, and eventually, eventually, if the hat decides that you're worthy, you'll be picked up by a UFO. And that UFO is going to deposit you in the redwood forests of California. And what you'll find there is the most important relic in American history. It's called the Catafalque of the New World, and in that catafalque contains a skeleton constructed from the bones of every American president, Davy Crockett, Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, Pecos Bill, and John Henry. It's a skeleton made of a single bone from each one of these mythic figures, and speaking of Paul Bunyan, it is guarded by the giant descendants of Paul Bunyan himself and their blue oxes. So you have to be very, very careful. But if you're able to approach the catafalque without becoming incinerated by its lustrous red, white, and blue glow, you'll learn the true secret of America. What is the true secret of America? Well, that wouldn't make it a secret. I can't tell you. Oh, beautiful. That is an Americana sacred relic created in real time with fabulous rivers of rich storytelling that could flow out of beautiful tributaries you know that's that's wonderful I'd like to to see a a giant wall map collage interactive World. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Meow Wolf should be doing. A beautiful mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it would appear two-dimensional, but giant wall size, but might be something you could actually walk through into other, you know, chambers, rooms, other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was cool. great. Well done. You lived up to the challenge again. Oh, my. Um, yeah, that was a... <laughs> I, I say it almost every episode, but part of the fun of doing this is that as we're talking, I'm just scribbling notes, and then once it's time, 
gotta put it together somehow. And this one was tricky because I ran off the page. So I had some stuff on two different pages. And you wouldn't think just turning a page is difficult, but when you're improving, it's uh it's <laughs> it's tough. You have to just keep the mouth and the tongue moving while you're scanning the page. So much fun. I enjoy these very much. I think having a natural ear for the music of language helps, you know, let the music be your guide, I, I tell my students, and the meaning will often, you know, appear of its own accord. There you go. Uh, so that, that is, you, you, you are, are well served by that fluency. Uh, well. And I think that that is something we all have to remember, that, that we are all, uh, you know, dependent on the tools. We're all tool-driven that way. And, yeah. and uh, so some of our, our challenge is to find more tools within ourselves because, you know, that's, that's how things grow in terms of artistic, intellectual uh, capabilities and also just pure enjoyment. Uh, well, beautiful, Excellent. beautiful. Um, for next, uh, I want to, I, I think, just flag a couple of possible issues of, of our extended investigation of realms, environments, uh, imaginary places, real places, but the sense of journey and map, psychic terrain, of locating uh, psyche and spirit within a context. I, I think that's one of the big things that we bring to the larger cultural party um, and why Lost Explorers is a really good, well-chosen name. Um, I have set myself um, a challenge and I think I've, I've, I've managed to do it. Uh, Borges is one of my uh, writing heroes. I think oh, that's shared by a lot of people. And uh, I think I've, I've managed to match him in a really interesting sort of way. He, uh, one of his it's a short essay um, about the, the precursors and the influences on Franz Kafka, but his point is that, that we wouldn't know about them without Kafka. The Kafka becomes the sigil, the crossroads, the, the map coordinates to other ways of, of other authors, other, other lines of thought. And his point is that every, every writer does that. Every writer creates... Uh, her or his own influences. And I, I, I've, I've, I've found someone new to share, um, a very famous writer um, from the 18th century who we should uh, revisit, um, but he's given us maybe the ultimate, uh, a very simple, very simple sigil of humanity and human culture, human presence in a landscape. Uh, He's the author of one of the most famous and influential books of all time. Some of his other works, I think, are really important to revisit because they are uh, so modern, it's, it's hard to believe. But he was also a great, uh, he wrote a very interesting, and this is how I, I rediscovered him, a great uh, a satirical lunar voyage, an imaginary uh, voyage to the moon. So he's part of that body of literature but he's also deeply involved in pirates and piracies and the idea of pirate utopias. So I won't mention his name, but I'll just say we've got something very exciting to uh, look forward to. 
whether or not we do hit that next episode, we will be getting to it at some point. But the adventure continues. And I think that this idea of of what our podcast is in terms of adventures of mind, adventures of culture is so important. We, we must really get back to that excitement and the spirit of possibility in adventure now more than ever with the American midterm elections coming up and just a sense of creeping and suffocating uh, discouragement and confusion. We need to light out to the territory for the territory, as Huck Finn would say. Um, so some cool things, more voyages to the moon, pirates, uh, and strange, strange adventures. But... I, I have a good tool for us to uh, to look at, and it's it's again very simple, but uh, I'm I'm using this in workshops, and it's it's enormously effective, uh, and it just shows you that there can be simple conceptual tools that you can do a lot of heavy lifting with. Uh, I call this antonym therapy. Uh, synonyms and antonyms are ways of giving of shedding new light on a word you know there are ways different ways of approaching it and i think that's really important you know look at synonyms and antonyms they're telling us something about words here's a good example of antonym therapy or the antonym tool working think of the word entertainment entertainment i maintain that two of the great distinguishing features of our time are a neurotic obsessive concern with identity and an almost just a nauseating glut of entertainment options which did not exist even 50 years ago and certainly didn't exist 150 years ago we just can't imagine what we've done to ourselves with the amount of entertainment. Well, look up the, an antonym for entertainment. That's an odd idea. You don't necessarily you know. Well, it's interesting what you come up with. First on the list is depression. Mm-hmm. I was, I was going to say now, punishment. Follow, punishment, which is really interesting. But I'll, I'm sorry, I'll let you but no, but go, it, 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 that even works. That's even more dramatic, I think. But now follow this through. Let's, you know, a, a tool isn't just something you hold in your, you know, hands or your conceptual hands. It's something you put to use. So we'll put it to use now. What if we ask the question? Well, if the antonym, the opposite of entertainment, is depression, and we have so very many more entertainment options today than we did a hundred years ago. Does that imply that we have more depression today? And then we could at least speculate. There's no harm in speculating, contrary to what some people think. There's no harm in speculating. Could there be a relationship? Supposing we know there is, in fact, many more entertainment options and channels and possibilities, so much that we're drowning, suffocating in them. So if there is more depression today, 
more need for entertainment, let's say. Could it be that entertainment is creating its own need? That the amount of entertainment is somehow creating more depression? There's no harm in speculating about that. And I think that gives us a new angle of, of inquiry about the nature of depression. Punishment, as you say. Uh, pain, dissatisfaction, uh, you know, boredom. There's a whole list of the antonyms. But what if we argued, just hypothetically, that it's the amount of entertainment that we have become addicted to in modern developed nations culture that is creating these psychological obstacles and problems and anguishes, then we have an interesting model of self-reinforcing proposition. And we know that that is a very reasonable concept because we can see very many of those. It's not like it's standing in a field on right. its own. Right. You know? right. So that's antonym theory. And I just encourage people to... To, to try that tool out, throw that around a little bit. It, it, it doesn't hurt, and it may shed some new light on a particular uh, problem, or if there is a word that is popping up in your life, and you, you, you've noticed it, and you kind of can't ignore it, well, look around at antonyms, and maybe see if that doesn't shed some new, new light, and create a new perspective. And here's my tip, and I do this, this is again a workshop tip that I, I've drawn it directly from my own life. I'm using it in my, my memory uh, training, but uh, I have, uh, I mean, I figure that you can't talk about being good at remembering if you can't find things that you lose. And I managed to find my magical pen, a Rotring, Rotring 800 pen, it's beautiful industrial pen, yeah. design, immense, oh, immensely satisfying. Immensely, uh, well, that was one of two things that got misplaced in my big house move. But I used my mental relaxation techniques and, and I found it. And it was just, because things do want to be found, that, that there is, just as there's gravity in the, in the physical world, which really means things attract each other. That's all that really gravity means. Things attract each other conceptually. There's a psychic energy level to it. And because we are gifted or afflicted with psychology, we should try to tap into that and, and use that sense of gravity. But uh, I've done this experiment with about 30 people, I think almost 40 people now. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. I have a very simple bag, the kind that I carry with me, but uh, men and women have these sort of bags. It's sort of a computer sort of office bag, your art, a, a you know, professional sort of working. Yeah, a satchel. And um, we do a bit of an, an empty. Uh, there are some things in it, but not. it's not crowded with complexity. But there are a few working items, you know. Uh, there are some felt pens, there's maybe a small little notebook. There's some, some things in it so that it looks like it's working. But I take the pen and I put it in the bag in front of someone. And I've created in them an expectation of some kind of stage magic. 
that's an interesting context to draw on. There isn't really any. I'm not doing any sleight of hand, really. But I do do one thing. I say with a tone of voice that I have developed and practiced, but also this particular phrase comes very easily to me. And you've got to choose your phrase. Not everyone, even a really great actor can only deliver certain things exactly the way they want to say it. But I say, and I'll, I won't do it in that tone, I'll just say it even more simply. I say to the subject, you'll never be able to find the pen. And then I hand them the bag. And guess what? They can't find it. They cannot find, no, they can't find the pen. And it, it works in a good, you know, with a small audience group. They're engaged with it too. But the beauty of it, it really, you really see the frustration in the person who's doing, who's standing with me and looking through the back. Because they're aware intuitively that there really wasn't any stage magic that they could really see. And they don't know why they can't find the pen. And out of about, let's say 30 guaranteed, out of 30 people, I have had only two failures. One person got frustrated to the point of having to leave. They got angry and just stomped off. And one person did find the pen. But that's out of 30. Yeah. And what is the point? What, what was preventing the finding of the pen in this finite thing of a bag. Not too finite. There are a bunch of pockets. There are, as I said, a few things in it. It's not just, you know, but it, it's a legitimate problem we all face. Women with handbags, and what, you know, most women do carry handbags, purses of some kind. They go through this all the time. So the only thing preventing the finding or inhibiting the finding was simply the authoritative suggestion, assertion that you won't, you'll never be able to find it. Yeah. You know? And we forget how entirely influenced we are by this. Mm -hmm. You know? And it, it, it's hardly, I mean, we get so many messages from advertising and you know, the, the larger world. So much static noise of, of impacting on our uh, perception. And we're, we're pretty good at defending against that. But what we forget is the energy we expend on that. We're so busy blocking and filtering out. We, we often filter out a lot of important information. And we can exaggerate our, our strength of mind. And someone can say something very directly and it gets right through and we're stopped and most of the time they're negative right. messages so using our technique of inversion uh, listeners will know David and I talk about inversion a lot as a technique David performs that in the imaginative challenges often flip that around and be a little bit more vulnerable and susceptible to positive encouragement mm -hmm. you know if we had a little bit more courage that way we might find that we're strangely reinforced and supported by the world 
much more than we feel challenged, embattled, and always at mm -hmm. odds with it. I love that. That's and great. thank you. I think those. I hope those are really those come from real practical experience in my life. I, I really am using those and working with them, and I have a lot of confidence in in sharing them. Uh, but you know, any tool, any tip is only as good as as the application opportunities. Right. So people need to put these to use. Um, and I'll, I'll close with the dream, which is simple, but I think also really intriguing. Uh, here's a lovely image about dreams. I don't know if people know of the, the wonderful clay animation creations of Art Clokey, uh, Gumby, Gumby and his pony pal, Pokey <clears throat> 2. Uh, I grew up on, on them as a child, and I later went to see Art Clokey in Berkeley. What a wonderful, zany uh, guy. I mean, he was really a genius. We, I don't know of any, any in clay animation who could do anything to match him. And he just completely opened his own psyche uh, in, in the subtext of what he's doing. Absolute wonderful outsider loon. As popular and, and huge as he became, he's still a great outsider artist. But I, I went back and just checked out a, a, a couple of the episodes. I wanted to see if, if it was as good as I remember. And there's a beautiful thing when Gumby falls asleep, because he's a he's a, a, a boy creature, sort of, and his parents, you know, say goodnight to him. But when he goes to sleep, uh, and he dreams, he changes shape. His whole body changes shape, and he becomes a sailboat, or a saxophone, or an airplane. You know, and it's this beautiful shifting thing. And I think that's a wonderful way for us to re-embody ourselves and think of our dreaming process. You know, we're, we're actually physically changing shape. So when you watch Gus sleeping, yeah. you know, just imagine it, you know. I think it's sort cool. of cool. But the other night I had a, a dream of, it was a, a very peculiar figure, uh, a kind of a sinister small town municipal leader uh, and I don't remember the full plot of it but it was an interesting rich sort of character who was both good and bad but what I did take away was the name and the name is Tom Dembler D-E-M-B-L-E-R and I thought I you know don't know anyone at all with that name and I googled on it well it's not a common name it seems like it should be more common doesn't it I mean it's certainly not exotic well there's Tomas spelled differently uh, with that name who was stabbed to death, a murder victim stabbed in somewhere in England like Northumberland or something and then there's a guy with that name on Facebook who proudly works for a company that makes you know precision products they make knives and he's got photographs on his facebook page of these beautiful tactical hunting knives and you know really great handmade uh you know tools um but i mean here are the the only two references that i found on google one is i got stabbed to death in England 
And another is an American guy, some Midwestern town, who works for a kind of exotic prestige company making specialized knives. And, I mean, I, how would you have invented that association? You wouldn't. And there's no way I could have taken that in somehow subconsciously, you know, in my memory at some point. I was, I was thinking of the name Tom Dimler and, and, you know, making connections between people and synchronicity. And I'm going, <coughs> no, that had to be completely organic and accidental. Wow. You 